Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. We look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This show will be talking MLS's wild card action, the catnip that is the U.S. Men's National Team 2023 versus 2014, I guess it would be. Millie Vanilli, the uh, Champions League roundup, American soccer jobs, va- uh, vaping, redundancy of the cheating Wolverines. Yeah, I said it. And much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossier, soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing? And you're coming to me uh, from the great city of Seattle. Am I right? Correct. And I just arrived. I'm in my hotel room. Uh, the visit hasn't really started yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I've never been to Seattle. I'm visiting my uh, younger brother, who I... Uh, I see so infrequently. He's basically a glorified cousin at this point, but uh, <laughs> I did decide to come visit him this weekend. Well, I mean, your reputation precedes you. Uh, usually when you get into a um, a hotel, especially early in the morning, uh, a lot of times they won't have the room ready and you got to wander or you know put your bags down. But they said, David Mossy's coming into town. We better have the room ready. So they got you right in, which is great for us because we get to have uh, you here. I hope you have a wonderful time in Seattle. It's a, uh, it's a great city, wonderful things to see and uh, that you get to see your cousin slash brother. That's a good thing. Uh, have you watched anything, my friend? Uh, not really since we last spoke, but I will say uh, last weekend I went to the Grammy Museum in downtown L.A. They have this great hip hop 50 year anniversary exhibition. And one of the things I'm looking forward to doing in Seattle is going to this pop culture museum, I guess they have, which charts the Seattle's music history from Jimi Hendrix to grunge, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, et cetera. So uh, I'll have a report on that on Monday when I'm back in L.A. All right. Long live uh, Queensryche. Okay. Uh, I have a bunch of stuff here that I got to kind of dump out because I've, I've had them over the past couple of weeks and I just forgot to bring them in of stuff that I have, uh, I have watched, which actually works out well because you don't have a whole lot of stuff here. So uh, a couple of things here. Millie Vanilli has a new documentary out on Paramount. For those that are too young to remember, Millie Vanilli, a uh, pop duo that came out and 
we came to find out that they didn't sing on their chart-topping album. They had number ones. They were huge, huge. And it was a big, big problem. Uh, they won a Grammy, and they had to give back the Grammy and all that kind of stuff. So it, it takes a look into how that ultimately happened, a look behind the curtain, if you will, on how pop music is made. And uh, I think it's fascinating uh, for those that know the story, even don't know the story. I think it's a fascinating uh, watch. Like I said, that's on uh, Paramount, and it kind of really humanizes these two um, pop stars that were demonized, and look, they 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 bear pl- plenty of um, uh, plenty of responsibility for ultimately what happened. But there's a whole lot of other people that uh, that do. And in the greater scheme of things, it's just pop music. Uh, then another uh, documentary called "Big Vape: The Rise and Fall of uh, Jewel." And Jewel was this, and still is this, electric cigarette um, and vape thing. And I don't know how many of you out there vape and do whatever, but it's just a fascinating look again into a company that took off and then had real problems relative to their product and how they sold their product. And it's, even if you, even if you don't, aren't interested in any of that, just the way things are marketed and the examination of how that's marketed, that I thought that was really, really good. I think that's on uh, Netflix. Um, No Hard Feelings with Jennifer Lawrence. It's trying to be like this you know, really raunchy type of, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of a rom-com, if you will. Uh, and it, it just falls flat for me. And then Old Dads with the comedian Bill Burr that's trying to kind of appeal to grouchy old folks out there that are, you know, complaining about the way the world's going. And it, again, I think both of those fall flat. So I'm not recommending No Hard Feelings or Old Dads, but I am recommending the Millie Vanilli documentary and Big Vape the documentary. Uh, should we light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. Do you want to start uh, off with your uh, your Wolverines? I think that's where we should definitely start off any type of, uh, uh, of um, soccer podcast, right? Um, so when last we spoke, there was all sorts of criticism of your Wolverines for cheating. And all I heard was, ah, oh, we're poo-pooing that. I want to get this out of the way. That's why I want to start off with this, Mossy. All right. Sure. Do you have any defense for the cheating that evidently is um, systemic when it comes to the Wolverine football program. I don't. And to be fair, I didn't poo-poo it. Uh, Jack, a guy who works on our pod, (laughs) as soon as we were off the air, he came running into the studio and launched this passionate defense of the Wolverine. So that's what's in your head. But I just reported the facts that they were under investigation and uh, we'd have to wait and see what happens. And yeah, the news gets worse by the day because, uh, you know, this all stems from... uh, in college football, it's uh, illegal to do in-person scouting. You can't send uh, staffers or coaches to other teams' games uh, and, and because you're, you, that's an illegal way to pick up on their signals and how they uh, signal their plays in and whatnot. And initially, the story was that this very low-level uh, Michigan staffer and his buddies had been doing this, and so Michigan was going to uh, have this defense that the coaches knew nothing about it, and it, you know, we were talking off air. It's very Watergate-ish that, you know, like a second-rate burglary. It was just these bozos doing this on their own, and they wanted to impress the coaching staff with how well they could pick up other team signals but pretend that they were doing it illegally when they were actually doing it illegally. But now we've come to find out there's this paper trail where the Michigan coaches were aware it was happening, and they might have even paid for it. It's so many games that there's no way this these guys were paying for it out of their own pocket. And and it it, it defies credulity to think that if the assistant coaches knew about it, obviously Jim Harbaugh knew about it. So this was an extensive thing that was going on that they'd been doing for over a couple of years and everybody knew about it. So yeah, it's a, it's a disaster. I don't know uh, 
if Jack is even trying to muster a defense anymore, but my God, this oh is, my uh, God. this is, ah, oh, Mossy, listen, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, you know, I know we started this off talking about, uh, American college football here, but I, I think it's, I, I think it's worth pointing out that our friend David Mossy here, I think just showed that there, there is honesty and there is maturity in the way that he approached this uh, situation and the way that he just laid it out and didn't try to shade it and didn't try to scream and yell or protect or anything like that. That's how things need to be done. My friend, that's how the country, that's how the world, that's how human beings should work. And we'll let the uh, chips fall where they may going, uh, going on. But I wanted to get that out of the way. Cause I know some people were asking me about that. All right, let's get into the soccer here. Mossy. We are, into the MLS playoffs. We had the uh, the uh, wild card games. And, uh, you know, the, there were two of them. They weren't really wild. Um, one had more goals than the other. Shall we start off over there in the uh, New York Red Bulls versus Charlotte game? Should we do that, my friend? I definitely want to start there because the star of the show was a Brazilian, Elias Manuel, who scored a hat trick. The Red Bulls with a 5-2 home victory. They will now face Cincinnati in round one. Remember, round one, it's best of three. So what are your thoughts on A, the Red Bulls' victory over Charlotte, and B, their prospects against the Supporter Shield winner, Cincinnati? Okay, so first off on uh, Charlotte, uh, don't let the, the the door hit you on the way out. And congratulations, I guess, on making the quote-unquote playoffs. But did we really need it? Uh, they did not show up. And, you know, this is... <laughs> We got this instead of Messi in the playoffs? I mean, come on, man. Uh, five, uh, five to two, ultimately it ended. So I guess, you know, them scoring goals. And to be fair, they could have scored some more goals. But this was a wide open, sloppy type of affair. Uh, but, but it was still entertaining, obviously, uh, with the goals. I think that if 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 Red Bull continues to play like this through the playoffs, they will they will go out. You cannot sustain this type of play. There was a lot of the classic Red Bull in terms of the high press that resulted in them winning the uh, balls up top. To your point, uh, hat trick from your uh, from your countryman. That's that was a wonderful type of uh, of moan, uh, a moment. The environment, to be fair, uh, didn't didn't have a long time to sell the game. It actually looked and sounded uh, really good. And, you know, ultimately, I think it was a entertaining game, but nobody's going to miss Charlotte. And when it comes to the Red Bulls, sometimes we get this feeling where, oh, my gosh, something's starting. And it's a, this is a playoff team. And we, we talked about the, the finality of, of a regular season and this new chapter and this new opportunity. I don't get that feeling necessarily from uh, from these Red Bulls that, hey, now they're in it. Now they're feeling it. Now they can uh, they can go forward, particularly in the way that they uh, that they ultimately played. But all in all, it was a fun game, especially relative to the game that uh, that came next in terms of the uh, the, the Western side. Any thoughts on uh, this game before we move to the other one? I was impressed by the Red Bulls. You know, we, we wondered about their attack and they exploded for five goals. And it would be the most MLS thing ever for the Red Bulls to somehow eliminate Cincinnati. But I don't see it. I think Cincinnati is the much better team on paper. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the 1-8 matchup in the other conference. And there, I think we all think there's a real possibility for the 8th seed to advance. But in, in this one, I would take Cincinnati. Um, in terms of the other matchups in the East, I mean, we did go through them the other day, but we can do it again. And you can yeah, sure. reiterate what you said and add any new thoughts. 4-5 well, matchup is Philadelphia-New England. 
Yeah. So I'm just in general, you know, as you mentioned, I don't want to just repeat ourselves, but Philadelphia, New England, Orlando, Nashville, Columbus, uh, Atlanta. And as we just mentioned, now that uh, Red Bulls have won, they go against Cincinnati. You know, I will say this. Uh, I was driving in Mossy and I was talking to, I, I know you know him, our friend uh, Mark Connolly, who is the head researcher over there for uh, MLS and for Apple. And I, you know, I always try to call different people and you know, pick their brain. And he's got an incredible brain. Oftentimes when you see people uh, on Apple that are saying anything remotely interesting, um, usually it's from the, the great mind of uh, Mark, Mark Connolly. And so I love to hear the way he thinks about it. And we were discussing how um, this, this new format is really going to be interesting in terms of, well, number one, it almost is the great equalizer. Uh, one of the criticisms that people have of the playoffs is when it's just a one-game type of affair, uh, if the, the gods don't su- smile on you in that moment, it might not be a fair representation of who you who you are as a team or who you have been as a team through the season. And with a three-game type of series, it gives a much wider type of margin for error and to have one of those bad days that you can still recover for. And so maybe we'll get a fairer representation and maybe a more just type of champion when, uh, when all is said and done. The other thing that I, I think Mark brought up uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our talk earlier is the, the fact that you know, now we have these teams that are left. And there's only, there's only four teams that have actual coaches that have won MLS Cups. And then when you look at the actual players, and we'll get to other teams out there, the, I guess the intrinsic knowledge and experience when it comes to playoffs isn't as dramatic as we have seen in the past. And maybe that opens it up to others actually winning. And while I just said that I, I don't see someone like the Red Bulls uh, going far, there is this kind of wide open um, field for, pe- for players and for coaches to do something. And that, that gets me to the, the final thing is coaching. The familiarity, we know it breeds contempt, but with that familiarity that comes with having played other teams and now playing them over and over and over again, and sometimes even playing them multiple times, four times, possibly if you go to all three games, I think the onus on coaches to really show their stuff in this MLS playoffs is going to be at a premium because you got to find a way to do something different. You got to find a way to have something up your sleeve that the opposition cannot plan for, that the opposition has not seen. It doesn't mean that you become somebody completely different, but I'm really interested and fascinated to see how these coaches and these teams approach these games, both the three-game concept, if you will, but also do they have something in reserve, something that we didn't see through the season? And that's really where they earn their stripes. I'm talking about these, uh, these coaches. And if and when that happens... Mm, kiss. It's going to be fun, uh, fun to see. So, you know, when we're talking about someone like, like Jim Curtin, who has an incredible, incredible amount of experience, does he find something against this New England team that he knows back and forth, and likewise they know back and forth, to do something, to do something, something different, as opposed to New England, which we know went through the craziness of Bruce Arena, now with Clint P.A., does he have something in his, in his locker? Uh, or... Or is, or is that it? He just says, look, this is who we are, and we're just going to take our, take our chances. So I think the coaches are really going to be tested in a good way to come up with something different. And we have some wonderful coaches. Whether they have won 
uh, MLS Cups or not. And by the way, those would be what? Steve Chirondolo, Schmetzer, Vermes, and, and even Gary Smith. That would probably be a trivia one, uh, having won it for, uh, for Colorado. So that's the way that I'm thinking about a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these games. And your best bet still is, I think, to go with, uh, with the home teams. And to your point, for example, Cincinnati, while we know that winning Supporters' Shield rarely translates into success on an, from an MLS Cup perspective, I still think that at least in this three-game series, the Red Bulls would have to do something spectacular to get out of, uh, uh, to, get past, to get past Cincinnati. You know, it's interesting. Baseball is going through this existential crisis with the Diamondbacks getting to the World Series where people are wondering, have the playoffs become too random? You, you want Cinderella stories and lower seeds making it, but you don't want it to happen so often that it feels like the regular season is meaningless. Uh, and MLS over the years has sort of dealt with that as well. Uh, you know, to some degree, you do want the playoffs to be an extension of the regular season. So you, you don't feel like you wasted all those months watching these teams and formulating opinions about who the best teams in the league are. And then all of a sudden, every year, a couple of random lower-seeded teams get hot and get to the finals. So, yeah, we've, I know we've tweaked the format many times over the years. It'd be interesting to see how this one, where you go from best of three in the opening rounds and then single elimination in the subsequent rounds. Uh, you're right. I'm curious to see how that goes. If in a best of three, if that eliminates uh, the chance for an upset there. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. But you, you said the other day, uh, if I re- recall, Philadelphia. Yep. And then you liked Orlando over Nashville. And yep. then you went with Atlanta over Columbus, despite Almada being suspended for that first game, correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't want to pick all of the home teams. And that one, I think, has the, the greatest potential for, uh, for upset. But, you know, when you talk about someone like, like Philadelphia or even Nashville, and especially in this season, Mossy, this, this crazy season with, with uh, what are we calling it, uh, League's Cup, uh, and that, that strange type of, of situation, you look back and you see, well, does anybody have something in reserve and have, have they, have they held back? And so I would look at someone like Nashville, even though I'm going to pick Orlando, because I think they are heading in with, uh, you know, a head of steam and really in a positive way. I, it would still would not surprise me if someone like Nashville ultimately came out on top, but I'm still going to go with all the home teams, except for Atlanta. I, I, I think they find a way against Columbus, except they are missing that star and, you know, stars, whether it's Hani Mukhtar or anybody else in, in any, in, in any sport, you need them to come good. And when it comes to the difference between some of these teams, if the coaching staff doesn't have some sort of tweak that, uh, you know, some sort of thing or tweak that is going to make the difference, then you got to leave it up to the players on the field and your star players have to find those moments of uh, those moments of magic. And when one of those moments of magic producers uh, is not on the field for Atlanta United, I mean, you don't need me to tell you that they uh, they are a less of a team. Uh, should we transition to the West? Let's do it. Uh, so the wild card game there last night, SKC San Jose, nil nil went to penalties, which is, was bad news for San Jose because Tim Milia was up to his old tricks. SKC prevailed Milia now seven and oh in shootouts in his professional career. So SKC move on setting up a round one series with St. Louis. Uh, stars in the house too. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mahomes there. He was up in the, uh, in the stands there as was his wife. And, uh, and, and she's part of the, uh, NWSL situation that's going on over there. So they are a, they are a soccer family, but they were there to see, uh, sporting KC. You know, I think I said this before, but I think it bears repeating uh, Peter Vermes, 
this is this is without a doubt, I think, his finest hour in getting this team to where where they are. And now, uh, as you mentioned, uh, from a penalty uh, kick perspective, once it went to penalties with Tim Melia, given his track record, you wondered, all right, well, is this the time that they go to the well and it's empty? Well, we come to find out that no, it's not empty. The man just has a second sight, if you will, in the ability to save penalties and make himself incredibly valuable in that in that moment. And look, I know if if you're playing and you lose in a penalty situation or if you're a fan of a team and your team loses, you hate penalties, but it's still despite a it was it was an okay game, wasn't the greatest game, despite a okay type of 90 minutes, still the penalties are just incredible drama. Everybody comes to to see it, everybody gets it, everybody understands What's at stake? And like I said, the drama that penalties produce, uh, even when we start talking about doing different things and golden goal here or, or something else, I think you're hard-pressed to find a moment in sports that is so steeped in, in drama and you can see it and feel it because the game just completely slows down. And we saw that last night in terms of uh, what was happening there. Great crowd on hand, like I said, uh, not just stars in the audience, but just a great crowd on hand. So they provided an energy. Ultimately, they couldn't get the goal in the 90 minutes. And then you start wondering if you're sporting KC, oh, we've had plenty of the ball, we've hit the post, we've done this and that. And it was a back and forth type of, uh, type of game. But is now, is this the moment that we let this one get away? Well, they didn't let it, let it get away. And now it sets up this, what, three and a half hour type of, should we call it a derby, if you will, uh, with, uh, with, with Sporting KC taking on uh, St. Louis. It's 250 miles between the two cities. It's the, um, it's the, the OGs versus the Nouveau Riche. Uh, just so many different storylines when it comes to these two teams. But the way that you talked about this a couple minutes ago, you don't necessarily think that Sporting KC, you think that's might be the end of the line ultimately when they face uh, St. Louis? No, I think this might be the first 1-8 matchup I've ever seen in any sport where the one seed gets to play the nobody believes in us card. Uh, over the last 12 hours, it's amazing how many people I've seen pick SKC to advance here. And to be fair, remember, SKC had a historically bad start to the season, picked up only three points from their first 10 games, while St. Louis had 19 points from their first 10 games. Since then, SKC gained more points than St. Louis. So for the last 70% of the regular season, SKC was the better team. So this is not really a true 1-8 matchup. SKC is better than that. Um, and so I actually think they have a great chance. No, I'm, I'm going along with everybody else. Okay. And thinking that, All right. Well, uh, I mean, it's in the major sc- upset alert here in that scouting report. It's almost like BC and AD, right. Or, you know, before that, before that 10 game streak. And then after that t- 10 game streak, and it was, it was a bad streak, obviously getting three points out of the, uh, out of a possible 30. And then they went on and they just hit their stride. And like we said, uh, Peter Vermey's got plenty of players back in terms of the injury, but I still think that this was a masterclass of coaching from a guy that, let's be honest, a lot of people had got, you know, leaving, including myself and others saying, hey, this might be the end of the road for him. But he said, not so fast. And uh, he proved his he proved his worth. And he, you know, he he made it valid that they stuck with him in a time where I think everybody would not have been surprised or thought to, uh, you know, thought a second thought had they made a change in that moment, given the uh, futility of those first, uh, first 10 games. Um, Houston holding, uh, hosting RSL. I got uh, Houston 
Talk about, you know, Benny Olsen and Benny Ball, uh, certainly for me, one of the finalists when it comes to uh, t- comes to coach of the year and what he has done and the way that he has kind of evolved and grown. And I think ultimately they are a better team, a more confident team than RSL in a, in a three-game series. Absolutely, I got Houston beaten RSL. We talked about the Sounders and just this experience that they have. And it's such a weird Sounders team where you got people like, you know, Raul Diaz, uh, uh, Rui Diaz, not even starting uh, for this team. And it's, while it's changed, it's still the Sounders. And I, st- and I still have to fall on that experience that they have. And in a three-game type of series against FC Dallas that relies so heavily on Jesus Ferreira, I have the Sounders coming through. And then LAFC versus Vancouver Whitecaps, unless something really, really strange and dramatic happens, I think that this might be a walk a walk in the park for LAFC. Maybe just in, uh, maybe they figured out in two games. Yeah, going back to Seattle, this Nico Lodero situation is interesting. His yep. contract is up at the end of the season. He came out and said that this is definitely going to be his last season and, and made it clear that he's pretty unhappy with how this was handled. Uh, now, Craig Weibel came out and said, well, no, uh, the conversations we've had with him so far were just preliminary and we were going to wait till after the season to really get down to business and figure out whether we we're going to keep him or not. But apparently in whatever conversations they've had so far, he felt disrespected, felt like there wasn't this great sentiment of really wanting to bring him back. You know, he's 34 years old. His production has dipped. But, you know, he thought based on everything he's achieved there, seven years and two-time MLS Cup winner and CCL, et cetera, uh, that they should have shown him more respect than they did. You know, Stefan Fry is kind of dealing with a similar situation. So we'll see if it becomes a negative, a distraction, or if it creates this kind of last dance feel for this group of Sounders and actually motivates him even more to go out there and win another MLS Cup. Yeah, I mean, and you could also actually say the same thing about Philadelphia with, you know, players that they're losing and Bedoya and uh, Wagner and these types of things where it's almost the end of an era for Philadelphia and for Seattle Sounders. And maybe this is, like you said, a last dance type of uh, type of situation. And for, you know, for someone like Brian Schmetzer, this is a this is a new type of situation for him to deal with, but he's been so successful and been around so long. That I don't think this is going to phase him and he will, I would think behind the scenes, nip it in the bud to the extent that he can to not let it affect uh, this team. And there's a reason why you and I and others have confidence in this Seattle Sounders team. And yeah, it's based off of history and you're only as good as your last game. And, and, you know, we, we can look back, but we have to look at what this team is right now. And I think it's just, you know, I think it is interesting that it's, it's a different type of team on the field, but it's still the Seattle Sounders. And against Dallas, I, uh, I have them there. So that's, you know, that's the way that it looks there. Anything else uh, before we move on here, my friend? No, that's it. All right, let's take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, what do we have? Oh, yeah, Champions League. Uh, we got a recap and then some Americans abroad and some other stuff that we'll get. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more. Right now, save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. 
Okay, welcome back. Uh, the Champions League is upon us again and all sorts of games and goals and interesting stories on and off the field when it comes to the games. Where do you want to start? We had games on Tuesday and Wednesday, so obviously let's start on Tuesday. Where do you want to start, Mossy? We'll start with Manchester United, a much-needed 1-0 home win over Copenhagen. Uh, two of their more criticized players uh, emerged as the heroes. Harry Maguire scored the game winner, and then... Uh, Copenhagen were awarded a penalty in the last kick of the game. Henrik Larsson's son, Jordan Larsson, stepped up, but Andre Onana saved it. Uh, he's had a disastrous start to his United career, but maybe this could be a turning point for him. Uh, United get the victory. So first off on that save, uh, not only was it clutch and to your point, preserved the three points and a big three points, but the player himself kind of needed that. And then purely from a goalkeeping standpoint, that was an incredible save, by the way. For him to reach back and to be able to uh, to do that and have the strength. And for a guy that has, to your point, come under a lot of criticism, this was, this was huge. And maybe this kind of settles him going forward. And he needs to be settled because there's certainly a lot of questions when it comes to him, as there are a lot of questions. And, you know, talk about a guy under pressure, Harry Maguire to get that, uh, get that moment. Um, you know, Mossy, I'll ask you this. Do you think that the criticism for Harry Maguire is fair and warranted? Or do you think that it was piling on and just this mob mentality that it was fun to yell and scream about a player who, you know, has a high profile. He's not, you know, the biggest star out there, but has a high profile, makes a lot of money and seemingly is given opportunities even when he's not playing well for club and country that uh, make you scratch your head. Do you think that it was, that it was warranted? I'm not saying it stopped now, but do you think that it was warranted up to now? Well, yeah, him continuing to get picked by England uh, means that Gareth Southgate subscribes to your form as fallacy uh, right. notion. Uh, but yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that's gone on with Maguire on social media, I think, has been too much. But I mean, booing him in games, like, I don't have an issue with that. If, if you sign for a lot of money, you know, like that with that comes responsibility. If you're not performing, the fans are going to get on you. Uh, can I can I just kind of go off on a little tangent here uh, when it comes to social media relative to to athletes? Because I hear, you know, a lot and I, and I, I'm sympathetic and I, I can at least try to put myself in a modern day athlete's shoes. But do you think that it's more impactful in a negative way for an athlete that you know, plays poorly or whatever, has a bad game? Um, if he were to experience that criticism and negativity and toxicity, I guess, or venom, if you will, from a public walking into his bank or a supermarket or people screaming and yelling or as you drive away, do you think that that would be more damaging than reading it on, you know, your X feed or any type of social media out, out there? I, I just, I just feel like one you can turn off and one you can't. It's just you're, you're living your life. Now, I will concede that it's a whole lot easier for someone, especially anonymously, to type something that they wouldn't dare say to your face. But, you know, back in the day when there, quote unquote, wasn't social media, a lot of this stuff 
was said to your face. And maybe you know, a modern player gets it from both ends, right? Both on social media and publicly. But I don't know. I started to think about that, Mossy. I'll get your thoughts on that. You know, uh, working with you the past few years, I've sort of seen the dichotomy between how people act face-to-face versus social media. You know, if you spend a day on Twitter, you would think that Alexi Lalas is like the most hated <laughs> human being on earth. But in all the years of traveling around with you to cover games, when we're like hanging out in hotel lobbies, I've never seen a negative interaction. Everybody that comes up to you is super nice. Alexi, we love you. Ask to take pictures, autographs, et cetera. So there is such a difference. Um, but yeah, listen, it gets into a larger issue of us as a society, how addicted we are to social media. Like if, if you're a player that's getting abused, uh, stop reading it. But I mean, we, we just, as a society can't seem to, uh, not check our Twitter every yeah. five minutes. It's just, you know, so it's yeah, I mean, tough. It, it is a, a simple solution to that, which is to stop reading. Now I say it's simple, but the reality is that many, and I'll, I'll raise my hand. There is a. I guess, for lack of a better word, an addiction when it comes uh, when it comes to it. But to your point, you can get such a warped perception of what reality is. Now, look, this is not a invitation uh, or a challenge to anybody out there to scream and yell at me in, in public. Okay, that's uh, that's not what we're we're talking about here. Anyway, a little digression there in terms of uh, you know uh, the the Harry Maguire story. But I'm glad that he's playing well. I'm glad that he scored a big goal. And in the same way that we looked at Onana and said, hey, maybe this is something to kick him on, whether it's from, you know, whether I like Manchester United or not, if he's going through a difficult time in terms of the criticism, well, welcome to the world and welcome to reality. And by the way, 99.99999% of the world would love to deal with the criticism and negativity that you are getting and trade places with you in terms of being a multi-million dollar paid uh, athlete playing for one of the great teams in uh, in the world. But who knows? Maybe this is the uh, start of good things to come for him and Manchester United. Where should we go to next? Uh, Lons PSV finished one, one, uh, Tillman and death started. Pepe came on in second half stoppage time. Tillman actually assisted the PSV goal. Well, I mean, look, uh, this is a, this is a good, this is a good result, right? I mean, you're the, the long expert out there, right? I mean, this is a good point for uh, PSV. It is, uh, but I mentioned Pepe only came on uh, in second half stoppage time. He's had kind of a, a small role with PSV this season. Uh, meanwhile, there is another CONCACAF striker tearing it up for a big Dutch club, uh, Santi Jimenez, and we can transition to Wednesday. Uh, he scored twice on his Champions League debut in Feyenoord's 3-1 win over Lazio, and Mexican fans are having a field day on Twitter with this, pointing out that Santi Jimenez is actually outperforming all these Americans that are playing for big European clubs. Uh, and so people th- throwing dirt on Mexico, but they actually have a guy that's actually starring for a big European club. If you want to include Feyenoord and the Eredivisies um, on that level. Uh, and yeah, there's all sorts of debates now about who the best player on CONCACAF, in, in, at CONCACAF is. And do you have to put Santi Jimenez in that conversation up there with Pulisic and Reina, et cetera. So uh, this has become quite a, a talking point on Twitter the last couple of days, Santi Jimenez versus these various U.S. stars. Look, I, you know, I'll be the first one to jump into the, uh, you know, the back and forth when it comes to us and our friends to the South uh, Mexico and the incredible history and rivalry that, that they have. But I, I, I found myself thinking these last couple of days as, you know, Jimenez uh, uh, was doing what he was doing. And I can't help but be 
in a strange, I guess it's not a strange way, given our history and given our proximity, but being a little proud. And I say that as not just an American, but, you know, a, a fan and a diehard fan of the U.S. men's national team and American soccer players. You know, I, 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 I wear that on my sleeve. But there is this, this regional pride that I feel for CONCACAF. And yes, that extends, not extends, it is part of, you know, the way that I feel about Mexico. Now, when it's, when it's relative to another American player, obviously I'm going to fall on the, uh, on the U.S. side. But is it, is it sacrilege for me to say that, Mossy? Have I, have I, you know, am I, uh, am I going over to, uh, to, to, a, uh, to a dark side by even having and feeling these, these, uh, these moments of pride for a Mexican player doing well over in Europe? And I'm not saying it's at the same level of when American players do it, but I guess it's just maybe I'm, maybe I'm going soft in my old age, Mossy. Well, back in 2018, when the U.S. missed the World Cup, you very controversially said you were rooting for Mexico. So you've always felt like this rivalry doesn't preclude you from, at times, depending on the context, actually supporting and taking pride in Mexico's accomplishments as a fellow CONCACAF nation. It is. And, and maybe it also gets back to, you know, when, when, for example, we have the Gold Cup. When, for example, we have World Cup qualifying, and I know it's very different. We're actually going to talk about that later on in the pod about the World Cup qualifying process for the U.S. and the uh, the different nature leading up to 26. But it oftentimes people poo-poo and put down CONCACAF for the disparity of uh, of talent from the top to the bottom, and therefore, you know when. When the U.S., for example, has success within CONCACAF, it's always with this caveat and asterisk of, yeah, but it's in, in CONCACAF. And so, you know, the whole, you know, it raises all boats type of scenario here. So, yeah, I think that that's, and I don't think I'm alone out there. You know, I think I'm, I'm vamping right here about something, but I don't think that this is a unique type of feeling. All right. And don't get me wrong. I want to kick the ass of Mexico each and every time we play them. And I enjoy each and every time it happens. But I do, like I said, you know, I think, lo- th- you know, think globally and act locally, if you will. Well, that global thinking process includes our friends uh, down south. And, and I'll be honest, it, it applies to others, too. So when, when I see a, you know, Alfonso Davies. Uh, busting down that left side, you know, the fact that he's from Canada and obviously played in, in major league soccer, yeah, that, that fills me with a little bit of, uh, a bit of pride. And, you know, even, I guess it even extends past CONCACAF when an, a Miguel Almiron is running around for, uh, for Newcastle, that gets me excited that there is, there is this connection and we will forever be connected to Mexico, both on and off the soccer field in terms of our two, uh, two, uh, two countries. And so, yeah, again, I don't think, uh, I don't think that, that I'm alone. So that's a, uh, th- that's a good thing. And have, if I will leave, you leave you with this, but it also should be a, uh, you know, a lighting of the, of, uh, of a fire, hopefully under the American players saying, Hey, that pendulum and that gap that let's be honest, has been pretty wide in favor of the U S if that starts shrinking, uh, that is a problem from a U.S. perspective, and you don't want to do that. And so, 
more players doing well, more players playing when it comes to uh, the U.S. will establish or maintain that gap and keep that pendulum swung to the U.S. side, which is where I want it. What else? Uh, well, going, going back to Americans, uh, Celtic, Atletico Madrid, uh, 2-2. Celtic led twice. Atletico Madrid came back twice. Rodrigo de Paul sent off late. Cameron Carter-Vicker started this game, played all 90 minutes. Uh, yeah, and he had some interesting tackles. Uh, so, you know, obviously the starting part of it uh, is good. Uh, I'm happy for him. And, you know, we're going to talk later in the pod about, you know, what... Where, where the depth of this pool is when it comes to the national team. And, you know, people uh, have argued, and I think it's a, a fair argument, that, you know, this is the deepest pool of talent that the U.S. has ever had. And so when you see someone like CCV, you know, starting and playing well, that's just another potential player that you want, uh, that you want playing and that you want playing well. And I do think that he is going to be someone that people are going to uh, to look at, to throw into the mix. Now, is he a world beater? No. But, you know, this is this is a good thing. When you are starting, when you're starting over in Europe, and uh, by all accounts, you are someone that is going to continue to do that, and you've established that. Because it's not always easy, and just because you go to Europe, um, and just because you're playing in Europe, doesn't mean that you are assured a starting job. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, in Atletico Madrid's first goal, they earned a penalty. Griezmann took it. It was saved. The rebound came right back, back to him, and he put it in. In your MLS MVP criteria, is there any way to account for that? Because that officially goes down as a non-penalty goal, but surely you think that still should count as a quasi-penalty goal. No, I'm not going to stand on uh, principle. <laughs> That's that getting way. too crazy with it. <laughs> because in essence, what you did was you banked it off the post, I know it has to hit the, you know, what, but hit hit the goalkeeper, banked it off the post, which is pretty amazing to do. So I'll get, I'll give him that one in that. Yes, technically it was in the run of play, um, and it was not, and it will not be counted as a penalty. So yeah, he gets he gets by on that one. That's a technicality, but he still gets by on it, and it still counts full in my uh, criteria. And he should be so lucky as to have the opportunity in the future to be assessed relative to an, an MLS MVP. But he's talked a whole lot about how much he loves the U.S. and how much he would love to come over here, so it would not surprise me in the least if at some point, Masi, we are talking about Griezmann in MLS. Now, we'll see if he's good enough to actually be in the, in the conversation when it comes to MVP because it's not so easy, mon ami, just coming over here with your, uh, with your beautiful hair and your wonderful skill uh, as we have seen time and time again with some very, very good players. Yeah, Stu Holden, I believe, in a recent appearance on this podcast, was asked to name who's the next big star he thinks could end up here. And he said Griezmann and Modric, right, were the two names that he gave. If, if Messi is a 10 in terms of stardom, right, where does Griezmann, let's say Messi's a 10, uh, I would put, let's say, a Beckham when he came would have been an 8, and let's put a Zlatan at a 7. Where does Griezmann rate? Oh, he's even below Zlatan. Although no, of course, of course. But what are you talking about? Four or five? What are you looking at? Looking four or five? In in terms of just star power and impact and. Well, I mean, yeah, immediately, I, I immediately he, Stu talked to him. About, immediately Stu talked about him in the uh, in the way of you know this is a star. But is he really that big a star? 
No, I think he's a great player and whatever team he joins, he'd make a massive impact on a footballing level. I don't think in a sort of marketing star power level, Antoine Griezmann is a name that transcends that's uh, really going to yeah. move the needle that much. Well, let's be honest. There's, there's uh, very few that do. Anyway, Masu, what's next? Incidentally, if we ever get back to that topic, I have a name of a guy that I think is definitely coming to MLS in 2024. Maybe in a future pod, we'll revisit that. That, my friends, is um, called a tease. I love it. Go. Yes. Uh, and then a uh, big win for Dortmund. Uh, 1-0 away to Newcastle in the Metro with the only goal. Uh, Gio came on late in the second half. Uh, this is the, the toughest group, Group F, uh, and Dortmund with this victory get themselves right back in the mixer in position to advance. Uh, for Newcastle to add insult to injury, Sandro Tonali has been suspended 10 months for that gambling thing. We covered the England-Italy game recently, so we, we dealt with the fallout from an Italy perspective, but it was also horrible news for Newcastle because he was their big summer signing. They spent all this money on him, and now he's been suspended for 10 months. Amazing how a player in his prime, earning the kind of money this guy was, could mess up his career by getting, by gambling and getting caught doing it. But he's allowed to, evidently he's allowed to train with the team, right? Is that the, the, the latest? So, I mean, that's, uh, that's an interesting little caveat there. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's nuts. And from a competitive standpoint, just from a pure on-the-field perspective, that's, that's not good. Um, huge win, by the way. Uh, for Dortmund. And uh, as you mentioned, Gio Reyna came on again in a substitute capacity. And I, I guess that seems to be his fate, at least for the foreseeable future here as, uh, as a substitute uh, for Dortmund. And look, if they're getting the results, they will keep doing it. Hey, Mossy, I got a question for you. Some, I, I was uh, scrolling through and I, I follow um, Talk Sport, one of the uh, sports stations over there in, in England. And they were, they were debating whether Newcastle is a big club. Now, we obviously look at it from the U.S. perspective and international perspective. Do you think Newcastle is a big club? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, big club, it, it's sort of like world-class player. You ask 10 people and yeah. they, you get 10 different definitions of what big club means. Um, I, I Obviously, now with this new ownership and the money they're going to spend, I think they could become one. But I think in recent times, in terms of the, the overall landscape of European football, no, I, I would not describe Newcastle as a big club. Uh, I just don't think they have the, the trophy case to, to back that up. Uh, but obviously, a club that has a huge following, I get Newcastle fans tweeting at me all the time. They're very passionate. And I think now, with this new ownership and the money they're going to spend, they're, they're going to, uh, I think, work their way into that mix. Um, but uh, yeah. I guess the answer would be no. I agree. Uh, I agree. I don't think that they are one of those elite global types of brands. And when I think about Newcastle, I think about what? Beer, Shearer, our friend Warren Barton. And, and all you've heard for years about Newcastle is the incredibly rabid support. And I guess big relative to the amount of people that are in the stands, but big relative to these huge global brands that we see right now, they are not there yet. But to your point, with this new ownership, they certainly can be, but they are still a long way off. In terms of the Premier League pecking order, and we'll get to the Premier League in a minute, but you have your traditional big six, although two of those, Chelsea and Manchester United, haven't been playing like big six teams so far this season. Um, and then you have this really good second tier which I would consider Aston Villa, Brighton, Newcastle, and West Ham. Now, Newcastle finished in the top four last season, but for now, I'm still going to put them in the second tier. But those are all four very good teams that could absolutely finish top four if the bigger clubs slip up. So 
in, in terms of depth, the Premier League is doing very well right now because on top of the traditional powers, you do have this really strong second tier that's emerged. Look, if if they're able to, with what they've already built, also add, like you said, with some some parity of quality, uh, that would uh, you know that would take them to a whole nother level because. You know, you can complain and scream and yell. And one of the complaints is that it is a top heavy league and it's predictable and, and all that. But to your point, with the uh, with the money that's coming in and with the direction that they are heading, they not only have the opportunity to continue to be the most popular league, but from a competitive standpoint to give people um, a league that like we talk about MLS, you believe that anything can happen and any team can win. And I know it's not it's not yet even close to what MLS manufactures, but if they're heading in that direction, that's a, a good thing. All right, where should we go now? Well, just to wrap up Champions League, we got a little off topic there, but uh, uh, PSG 3-0 home win over AC Milan, also in Grupa. Uh, Pulisic and Musa both started uh, ineffective. Pulisic had a great chance in the second half where he was clean through on goal and could have shot it, but instead tried to square it to uh, Giroud. Uh, a lot of people were questioning that decision. Uh, the PSG goals, Mbappe, Kolomwani, and Kang Yin. The Mbappe goal, by the way, you saw it, right? I mean, yep. the way how quickly he cuts to the middle and then gets off a shot uh, at the near post there was unbelievable. That's 42 goals and 64 Champions League appearances. Uh, our, our colleague and boss, Judy Boyd, was firing off excited texts about Mbappe again. So, I mean, he is a guy right now that people are just amazed by what he's doing. And, yeah, this was another... Another moment for him, huh? I mean, should we be amazed anymore? And just he just continues to do what he's doing. But in the in the bigger picture, as PSG, we've talked a whole lot about the changes that have happened, and you know maybe this is a situation where addition by subtraction, and to be fair, also addition, but that this is maybe the PSG that we have been promised. But you know, look, it, it, we've we've been fooled before, but. If this is the way that it's going, and look, I, as much as we have talked about Milan and you know the uh, um, the, uh, the the talent that they have and how strong they look, this wasn't even close as far as I'm concerned. Yes, they had some opportunities, but they're still Milan. They're going to create some stuff, and we can scream about uh, Christian Pulisic dishing rather than being more selfish, and that's certainly a debate to have. But there was only one team ultimately that was going to win this game, and I think ultimately it was comfortable fight uh, from PSG and just to get all geeky here the cut inside that we see which is ubiquitous uh, in the game especially for players that are playing on the off wing and cutting into their preferred foot then tradition dictates that you then try to curl it to that far post and yet for him in that moment to recognize that no I'm gonna I'm gonna switch it up but I'm not just gonna switch it up and go near post I'm gonna switch it up and almost on the for a musical reference the off beat to be able to come back and cut across the grain there, that is where the magic is. That's where the beauty is. And that's where the greatness and talent of players are. That while, while the ultimate finish is predictable because of their incredible talent, the way in which they do it, they just slightly tweak it in different ways to accommodate goalkeepers and teams and defenders that are starting to catch, catch on. And it's just, it's just really, really pretty to see. Uh, AC Milani yet to score a goal in the Champions League this season. They're in the bottom of their group. Uh, they're faring much better domestically as we transition to the weekend, the big one in Italy. Uh, AC Milan away to Napoli. That's second versus fourth. It's the battle of the last two Serie A champions. 
Uh, so we'll see how Pulisic and Musa fare in that one. This fixture, by the way, evokes uh, great memories for Italian football lovers because in the late 80s, uh, this was the game when you had Maradona and Ferec on one side and the three Dutchmen, Van Basten, Hulet, and Rijkaard for AC Milan. And there were some great title races between those clubs. I know you played in Serie a little bit later. By then, Napoli were gone and Juventus were kind of reemerging as that other team battling AC Milan. Uh, but uh, now, yeah, Napoli, Milan, always a fixture that brings back some great memories. And I don't know if you saw the interview with Christian Pulisic after the game. And, you know, they were asking him about you know, what had happened. And, you know, it's not like Christian is the best interview. And it's, very, it's devoid of energy, as is often the case when you're, when you're uh, talking to Christian. But he, you know, he did mention that, you know, this isn't the end of the world in terms of losing to PSG. And they have the opportunity to kind of rebound. And I think that they would be looking against, like you said, a, a, a Napoli team that absolutely could, uh, could beat them. Uh, hopefully, Pulisic and Musa maintain their position and are starting uh, and starting this weekend. And if they were to to rebound, that would be exactly what the doctor ordered. But I know we'll be watching. Uh, in Germany, Eintracht Frankfurt hosts Dortmund. A couple weeks ago, Dortmund played Union Berlin, and Gio Reyna and Brendan Aronson were on the field at the same time. Could happen here also with Gio and Paxton Aronson. Although Paxton. Uh, has only played 30-something minutes in the Bundesliga this season, so we'll see if he gets on the field for this one. Yeah, we'll see if Paxton does. And and Gio, I mean, uh, do, you, do you get the feeling, Mossy, that they are bringing him along slowly? Or do you get the feeling, like I said, that this just might ultimately be his fate as a substitute for this team, regardless of what's... Unless, unless they just go on an incredible losing streak or unless, obviously, there are injuries out there. This this might be where they see him uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I do get that feeling. Mostly a super sub, and then starting a game every now and then, just as part of part of like squad rotation. But I don't think this is building him up to eventually be a regular starter. I just don't see Eden Terzic. I don't think he views him in that way. All right, should we go over to España? Yes, a pretty big fixture there. Uh, Barcelona will host Real Madrid. Um, uh, Jude Bellingham, who scored again in Real Madrid's uh, Champions League win over Braga, uh, picked up a knock late in that game, had to come off, but he said he's fine. He'll be available for the Clasico. Uh, Barcelona dealing with all sorts of injuries. Also some interesting off-the-field stuff. Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, who you saw recently in the Beckham documentary, uh, he is not going to attend this game, and that that's a big deal. And what happened here is there's tension. Uh, as we know, Barcelona have been embroiled in this scandal uh, relating to the fact that for a period of many years, they were paying money to this company that's owned by the uh, chief of La Liga refereeing and Real Madrid criticized him for it. And then Barcelona's president Laporta came out and said that that's hypocritical because Real Madrid have always been the regime's team and Real Madrid were offended by that. And that had people relitigating the Spanish Civil War and who was on what side. <laughs> and so that had already created tension. And then more recently, in that Champions League game that Real Madrid played against Braga this week, Vinicius had to play late in the game where he he got the ball in the corner and started doing a bunch of needless stepovers and was kind of showboating. And a Barcelona director fired off a tweet coming to the effect of, uh, it's not racism. People hate you because you're a clown. Uh, and they ended up taking down the tweet and, and, and Xavi apologized for it. But nevertheless, apparently that was the last straw. Florentino Perez was so offended by that that he's decided he's not going to this game. Wow, I might not watch it. <sighs> knowing that Florentino Perez is not going to be in, uh, in the stands. Um, speaking of the stands, uh, where is this one being played? Oh, yeah. Barcelona, you know, they're, they're re, uh, renovating their stadium, Camp Nou, so they, they're playing their home games this season in a different place. 
so it won't be the usual scenes that you, when when Barcelona hosts Real Madrid. It still uh, evidently holds fifty thousand people, so there, uh, it'll still be a good environment. You, you know, Vinicius is such a, a polarizing player right now. It's made we didn't we never talked about this, but a few weeks ago there was a horrible incident when Real Madrid played away to Atletico. There was a woman who went to the game with her eight-year-old niece who wore a Vinicius jersey, and she was accosted by Atletico Ultras who threatened to kill her. And the woman has since come out and said that the niece is having nightmares and is traumatized by the incident and told her that she never wants to go to a soccer game again. And there's been like racist stuff with Vinicius this season, more of it that we haven't even talked about on the pod because, I mean, I hate to say it, but it just it sort of happens every week now that if you, yeah. if you if you we wouldn't be talking about anything else. And then there's this incident with the Barcelona director tweeting what he tweeted. Like, I don't know. There's something about that guy that just rubs other opponents the wrong way. I mean, it's amazing what a lightning rod he is in Spain. Doesn't, doesn't it suck that a player gets to you know, live out their dream and to play for arguably the greatest team in the world? And yet the environment that is created through the society and culture that surrounds this, this great team is one that nobody would <laughs> you know no nobody would look at and say yeah i need to go someplace else you know and that that's that's that, that is crazy and he is an incredible talent and you know what i mean th- isn't is this not the the land and the teams and the culture of you know ronaldinho or or, or others so showboating or being creative and being cheeky or hell even being arrogant like that's a crime now and and not only is that a crime but that is that is met with just ridiculous uh, you know horrible types of behavior from people what the hell are we doing don't don't be an asshole right i mean print up the t-shirts good god i i hope i hope mossy to your point that this doesn't drive him out of Real Madrid. I hope this doesn't drive him out of Spain because, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you would not begrudge him thinking, you know, why do I need this? Why, why should I continue to do this with, with each and every week, something else happening. And, and, and again, this is not, this is not a situation where, Hey, you're creating the situation. No, 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 no. Anyway, uh, let's hope it gets better for him. Let's hope it gets better for uh, uh, for La Liga. And I guess let's hope it gets better for, for Spain. Uh, where to now, my friend? Uh, the big one in England, Manchester United will host Manchester City in the Derby. This is Holland against Hoyland, a battle of Scandinavian strikers. It's Ten Hag versus Pep, a battle of bald managers. Um, City have won five of the last seven meetings. They won two out of three last season, a 6-3 at the Etihad, which was even worse than the score. And then they beat them 2-1 at Wembley in the FA Cup final. But United did win the game at Old Trafford, which is where this one is. Uh, they beat them 2-1 last season. So we'll see what they can do here. I mean, this season, or I guess this moment right now, you still, man, you still would pick Man City just because I think that they are a better team. However, we have yet to see the best, I think, of this Man City team yet in this season. And, you know, in the way that we just talked about, Manchester United, while it certainly hasn't been a great season for them, you do get the feeling that there is that they're heading in a better direction. So if if one is coming up and the other one isn't necessarily going down, but isn't isn't moving up, 
is this the moment when Manchester United, you know, find a way to really plant a flag? And I'll answer my own question, Mossy. No, it isn't. You know, this has to be one of the biggest big brother, little brother flips we've seen. I mean, it's going on a decade now where City have been clearly uh, the better club. You know, the the only last thing United fans had to hold against them was that the fact that they hadn't won the Champions League. Well, they did that. They won a treble, which is something that United <laughs> had been the only English team to achieve in 99. We know uh, all the Premier League titles that City have won. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. And, and there's like no signs of this changing. I mean, as long as Pep is there and City have kind of the ownership they have in place now and United are still owned by the Glazers and are bumbling around. I know uh, there was a possibility of them finally selling the team, but now it looks like it's going to be a different kind of sale where somebody's going to buy a minority stake and it's still going to be the Glazers owning the majority of the club. And I, there's just no, I think we could be sitting here 10 years from now and City still clearly the superior club. And, you know, Whoa. again, to reference the, the Beckham doc, that was an era where, I mean, I didn't even hear Manchester City's name mentioned once in that doc. Like they were no factor in that era of English football. And it was just United winning trophy after trophy. And it's amazing how it's flipped. Wow. So that is David Mossy predicting another decade of dominance for uh, the blue side of uh, Manchester. Um, All right. Should we finish it off here talking a little bit about Spurs? And, you know, look, remember we talked about arsenal relative to last season where it was this tortoise and hare type of thing and they just didn't have enough juice ultimately to play it out and finish um and finish strong are we looking at a a similar situation here with spurs are you buying this in that they are good for the uh for the long haul here and will be able to uh figure it out I don't think I'm buying them as a title contender. Um, if City were to falter, I still think Liverpool or Arsenal would be the likeliest teams to capitalize and win the title. But I am buying Tottenham for top four, which would be a very nice achievement in this first season post-Harry Kane. I, I do love Postacoglu. I like the team. I like the way they're playing. They are top of the league right now, and they are away to Crystal Palace this weekend, which does have Chris Richards. He's only started one Premier League game all season, so I don't suspect we'll see him, but you never know. Uh, but yeah, so that's an interesting one as well as we talk about City and their dominance. But right now they're staring up at Tottenham in the Premier League table. Yeah, for now they're uh, they're up there. Uh, but, you know, a lot of games coming, including the, uh, what do they call them? The festive time where, uh, where all sorts of things can happen and all sorts of things can change. All right, that's our little uh, wrap up. Wasn't so little. We went all over the place, but it gives you a good idea of uh, what we saw and uh, also what we are looking forward to coming this uh, weekend. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Flex. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the uh, show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. And you can do them over there on uh, social media. Just keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call in to our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That is 657-549-2297. Now, we wanted to make a little space, I think, Mossy, in this uh, section. So I think if I'm correct, we have one question. It's a voicemail, right? Correct. Uh, we have a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, this is Ed from Asheville, North Carolina. Hope you guys are both doing well. Uh, I have a question specifically for Alexi. I've heard you say several times that the in 2002, the U.S. was one handball call away from a World Cup semifinal. But the score was 1-0 at the time, Germany. The score finished 1-0. A converted penalty kick only ties it at one. Presumably, 
Germany would have been down a man due to the handball. That would have been denying a novice goal scoring opportunity. But we can't assume the U.S. would have scored again in extra time or had won in kicks against Oliver Kahn, one of the greatest goalkeepers in the world at that time. So why do you say, why do you make the statement about the, the semifinal? Or are you simply looking at the game through red, white, and blue colored glasses? Thanks a ton. I appreciate your response and um, appreciate all you guys do. Thanks. All right. Uh, that's a great question, Ed. Uh, by the way, down there in Asheville. Asheville is beautiful, Mossy. If you ever get a chance to go down there, I don't know if you maybe you've been, but wonderful, wonderful neck of the woods down there. Um, you're, you're absolutely right, Ed, and uh, in terms of uh, calling me out for this. And so I will, I will answer. The reason why I say that is because, Ed, I believe in America. All right? And maybe it is with those, you know, red, white, and blue colored glasses. But not only do I believe in America, but I in particular believed, and I guess many years on, believe that this team, this 2002 men's World Cup team, would have found a way through. You're absolutely right. The U.S. at that point was down one nothing. Uh, the great Michael Bollock had scored in the, uh, uh, in the first half. And this handball came. And, you know, yes, I am extrapolating it out in that, you know, one, had it been called, it would have been a red card. So Germany would go down to 10. Had it been called, yes, somebody has to step up and actually take the penalty and make the penalty against, as you rightly mentioned, one of the great goalkeepers in history, Oliver Kahn. And then they would have had, you know, the rest of that game with a man up. But you need look no further than... Back in my day, back in 1994, where we were up for a good portion of the game against Mossy's Brazil and still lost the game. So just because you go up a man does not mean that you are going to uh, win the game, even if you uh, score that goal and make it one to one. But I look at, like I said, the glass half full and I looked at it in a much more positive light in that. I believed that the scale would have tipped towards the U.S. and this particular U.S. team, given how well they had played through the tournament under Bruce Arena, would have found a way to get that what would be maybe a two to one uh, victory against a 10 man Germany team. So um, I, I understand where you are, are, are coming from and maybe what I should say going forward, and maybe, Ed, you have uh, enlightened me, I should say that the U.S. was a handball away of potentially tying Germany and going on to a semifinal. And I know, look, I I know it's a little, we all do this, a little revisionist in terms of the history looking back in that game. But there, I think you would agree, Ed, that there is a a longing and a thinking that is attached to that particular game of what could have been, especially in this day and age of, of VAR and what could have been had that handball been called, had the red card been given, had the U S made the penalty and then, uh, and then gone on. But this does get us into this debate that has come up over the last couple of days that has kind of overtaken the soccer world, the U.S. soccer world out there, Mossy, a debate relative to 
who this team is, the U.S. men's national team right now, and who the U.S. men's national team was. So the version of it in, like we just mentioned, 2002, or the version of it in 98 or 94 or 2006, 2010. And we usually we associate it with, uh, with World Cups. Even though the U.S. wasn't at the 2018 World Cup, you can still associate it with a group of players and how far we come, we have come. And all of this comes about because uh, U.S. men's national team legend Josie Altidore went on, uh, it's called Kicking It over there on, uh, on CBS with our good friend Kate Abdo and Clint Dempsey and Marisa Du and Charlie Davies, where they, you know, they have discussions uh, with different folks. They've had Carly Lloyd on and, and different people. And they got into the discussion with Josie Altidore about the men's national team now what it is and who would have won and what it would have looked like had Josie Altidore's team from 2014 played the, the national team. And Josie was, he, he, was, he wasn't wishy-washy, but you know, he, he was pretty clear as to his belief that from a talent perspective, he feels that the 2014 collection of players was better than the 2000. Uh, and 23 version, and that that 2014 team would win. And look, this is this is catnip, all right, <laughs> to to us and to everybody else looking at it. And you know, so it, it it got me thinking. And you know, I I just like anybody else, I started looking back at the players and to see if I felt that Josie was correct. And again, it's the players in that moment. So while some of these players have been around for multiple you know cycles. We're looking at it specifically in that moment. So, for example, in 2014 on his team, you would have a DeMarcus Beasley. But this is a DeMarcus Beasley at the age of 32. And so do you think that, for example, a DeMarcus Beasley is better on that left-hand side than a Anthony Robinson or something like that? And again, this is a DeMarcus Beasley at 32. And so when you start to go through this and you start to see, all right, this is Josie Altidore, age 24, prime. So... Would Josie start over, you know, right now we're talking about a Balogun, all right? I, 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 can, I can make an argument there. Uh, Josie, again, at the age of uh, 24, at that point playing at Sunderland. Then you go through Tim Howard. Uh, can he start over a, uh, a Matt Turner? All right, I think you can make an argument there. It gets interesting in the back because I don't think that anybody from that team starts over, let's say, a Tim Weah. Uh, or a Christian Pulisic, or a, uh, let's say, a Yunus Musa, or a, and we're going to include Tyler Adams. I know he's hurt, but we're going to include a Tyler, uh, a Tyler Adams in that 3-0, in that 3-0, I guess, a 3-0 it would be, of Weston McKinney. I'm, I'm hard-pressed to find somebody that's going to start over them. Might say Jermaine Jones, possibility there. You also might say recently retired Michael Bradley. And I think you can make an argument there. When you get into the defense, it's interesting. I'm not sure anybody is starting over uh, Serginho Dest on that left-hand side. And I'm not sure that anybody from a center back, eh, maybe a John Brooks, Matt Beasler, Omar Gonzalez over. I mean, maybe. I don't know, Mossy. So I'm, so I'm looking, and you got like Miss Disrude and Alex, uh, Alejandro Bedoya. And so I'm looking for comps for those guys. And that's like a a Brendan Aronson. That's not, not any better or worse. So ultimately, when I come, if I were to at, be asked, which team is better, the 2023 U.S. men's national team or the 2014 U.S. men's national team, 
I don't think Josie Altidore is right. I think that 2023 is a better team. And I'm not saying that players wouldn't make the starting lineup, but not a whole lot of them would make the starting lineup right now. Mossy, what are your thoughts? This reminds me of Sydney, by the way, where you would start every podcast by launching into like a 50-minute <laughs> monologue before anybody heard my voice. But no, rather than going position by position, I want to raise a couple of larger points here. We just had a Milan-Juventus game in which uh, four Americans started. We all celebrated that. There's no question the European Cup club pedigree of the U.S. squad right now is stronger than it's ever been. There's some people that look at that and equate that with talent and thinks that automatically means this current team is better than anyone in the past. While there are others that think what we're really celebrating here there is the greater acceptance of U.S. players. It doesn't necessarily mean today's players are better, but it means that their level of acceptance in European soccer is higher than it was in previous generations. So is that how you feel? You feel like there were players on your team in 94 that uh, could have been good enough to play for the top European clubs, but just back then, the American player didn't have the same level of respect it has now. Uh, And then the other argument would be, even people who acknowledge that this current generation is more talented, they feel like in this effort to be progressive, the U.S. has lost some of its toughness. So they feel like even less talented U.S. teams from the past might beat this current uh, U.S. team because they're just tougher and fitter and better on set pieces and, and more rugged and, and that kind of stuff. So I think those are two interesting elements of the conversation. Well, Masi, rather than make this segment any longer than it needs to be uh, and continue on, what I'm going to do is I'm going to table this and I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at, you know, let's say all the different versions of the World Cup teams from 1990 on. And as I said, even though 18, we weren't there, you can still kind of look at it and assess it. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to figure out what I feel is the best team and almost give you a, a power rankings, uh, if you will. But before, you know, before we, we, we end this segment, I, I will say that no matter what, I think that there is a, uh, an ego involved in those of us that played before that sometimes say, you know, I, I think that, that there is a lack of understanding and or respect or appreciation for how good someone like, you know, I mentioned oftentimes, someone like Tab Ramos, okay? That, that man would have been great in any era that he played in. And as I said, at times he was slumming it playing, playing with us. But I also believe that good athletes are good athletes and they will find a way to be, uh, to be successful. I do think that over the last 30 years, shall we say, that the average American soccer player has improved. But the elite American soccer player I, I don't think that there is as dramatic a difference as people want there to be, but I don't think that that is an indictment of the program or of, uh, or of American soccer. And I do think that we have more, to your point, depth. We have more good players, and you're absolutely right. They are living in a completely different climate and a completely different um, platform that just didn't exist back then. And your credibility as an American soccer player is so dramatically different than it was in the past that it affords you opportunities that previous generations didn't have. And you know what you call that? You call that progress. And so 
that's, you know, that's the way that I ultimately think about it. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to have a look here at some of these, some of these teams and I'll try to figure out comps and I'll try to figure out who ultimately would have had the best 11, if you will, who could put the most talent on the field and be the best team. I will tell you, uh, I'm, you know, from a 1994 perspective, and I tweeted this earlier this, uh, this week, uh, we would kick everybody's ass and then we would leave uh, with your girlfriends. And uh, whether we would win any games, I don't know. But, you know, this, that, was, that was the type of team that we had in, 19, uh, in 1994. Uh, anything else, Mossy? Well, just a, another minute on this. Uh, I know Eric Winalda and Tony Miola, two of your former 94 teammates, got involved in this conversation on Twitter. And I know they deeply resent the fact that a lot of U.S. fans think the whole Dosa Cero with Mexico only started in the 2000s. Uh, that qualifier in 2001 and then the World Cup the following year. Uh, they're convinced that the original Dos Acero was at 91 Gold Cup uh, semis in which Peter Vermey scored uh, here in, in Los Angeles where you are right now. Um, and so I know that's a hill that Eric has always died on. Uh, and by the way, there's another U.S. win over Mexico that nobody talks about that was also very significant and one that you played a part in in the 91 Pan-American Games. Uh, that's been in my brain lately because the Pan-American Games are going on right now in Santiago, Chile. But that one that you took part in in Havana in 91, the U.S. beat Mexico there uh, to win the gold medal. That was also a pretty significant uh, turning of the rivalry. So yeah, uh, wh- whatever you think about this stuff and what the best teams are, I mean, it would behoove some younger U.S. fans to really get to learn the history better and stuff that went on in the 90s uh, because there were some pretty seminal moments there as well. I'll tell you some stories about Cuba later, uh, later on. But, uh, but okay, to finish this, this off, this is the reality, okay? And it probably applies to all sports. You, you start your fandom when you start your fandom, when it, when it first touches you. And yeah, you would want generations to look back and to you know, acknowledge and be respectful of what came before in terms of the history. And there is an incredible history when it comes to soccer. But I, I don't... I don't care that they do. I don't want them to do. They don't need to do it. And just because you do it doesn't make you any better. (laughs) While you may have more context, I guess, it doesn't necessarily make any better. When, you know, I came of age when it comes to soccer in the the 70s and the 80s and my first World Cup relative to American soccer is 1990 when they, uh, they qualified. But there's a whole generation, some of them that step on the field for our national team right now, that weren't even born back then. And I don't expect them to understand or, you know, it's, it's just, that's just the way that the world works and probably all different sports. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, we'll finish out this long State of the Union with a quick one to the road. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. You know, I was uh, going back and forth with some folks over there on the uh, X machine, as I want to do, right, Mossy? And uh, now someone was, uh, you know, the, the evergreen topic of promotion relegation, and it got convoluted with a whole lot of different stuff, including, you know, what what American soccer is and isn't. And as I say time and time again, we love to kick ourselves for what we haven't done, but we also have to acknowledge and sometimes pat ourselves on the back with how far we have come. And I know I wear my MLS heart on my sleeve. It is my league. It is uh, our league. uh, If you are part of the MLS family and not everybody is, but um, it is something that I came back to and it remains one of my most 
proud moments uh, of my life coming back to start something from, uh, from the start that still to this day lasts. And so someone was, you know, screaming and yelling at me as they do about, you know, what, what the world would look like if MLS had a different structure out there. And just perspective, I think, sometimes is in, is in order, Mossy. And while I just got done saying that, you know, this generation doesn't have to have any understanding or acknowledgement of what happened in the past, it doesn't preclude me or others from pointing it out. And, you know, back in 1996, when it was Wild West and we were starting out this thing uh, called MLS, there were 10 teams. And the roster sizes were 18, which means, if my Rutgers calculations are correct, around 180 jobs existed back then, in that case, simply in the United States, um, as professional soccer players on the 10 MLS teams. We just talked last episode about uh, the, uh, the arrival of the new, uh, newest MLS team down there in San Diego. So in 2025, uh, there will be you know, around 900 jobs as professional soccer players on MLS's 30 teams. So from 1996 to 2025, gone from 180 jobs to 900 jobs. Now that's just the jobs on the field. And while we'll talk about them as jobs, what it really amounts to is opportunities. And what it really amounts to is a opportunity, you know, to pat ourselves on the back with how far we have, uh, we've come. And off the field, that doesn't even take into account all of the staff uh, that, and the front offices and the uh, stadium staff and all the different uh, opportunities and jobs that have been created uh, off the field that exists. This also doesn't take into account MLS Next, which is more opportunities on the field. And it also doesn't take into account, even if you get beyond MLS, into USL and NWSL, and all of these, all of these different things, which means that there are men and women that wake up in 2023 that have pathways, that have opportunities, that have jobs, both on the soccer field and off the soccer field, that didn't exist not too long ago. And that's a good thing. I happen to be of the opinion that entities, companies, people that create more opportunities for others especially in a world that I love and that I obviously I make my living in when it comes to soccer, that those are good things. Those are good people. Those are people that are putting something into society out there. And I know it's just soccer. I know it's just sports and it pales in comparison to other things that are much, much more serious. But, you know, when we are talking about why aren't we this or think of what we could be if we did this or why don't we behave like this and why don't we have this structure and why don't you know, whether it's pro-rel or any, anything else out there. I just think that there, there, ought, there ought to come a time where people also take a look back and have some perspective and some understanding with what exists now relative to the past. And again, that doesn't necessarily come from a current generation. Oftentimes it comes from others. And so I'm just using my little moment here right now to remind everybody about the opportunities that exist. Is this a chance to rest on our laurels? Absolutely not. And does it still mean that there are potential soccer players that don't have those opportunities out there, whether it's in the United States and Canada? Yeah. But you know what? As the saying goes, we've come a long way, baby. And we still got a long way to go. But again, instead of kicking ourselves 
uh, in the ass. Or instead of those out there crapping on what, is, what has happened, maybe take a step back and recognize how good we have it relative to the past and uh, the good things that have come and those opportunities for all those different players, many of which we talk about on a consistent basis here on the State of the Union. And so whether it's a Christian Pulisic or a Weston McKinney, and the list goes on and on and on, they have grown up in a United States soccer culture and a Canadian soccer culture for that matter, that is dramatically and drastically different and so much more bountiful and plentiful and positive than anything that I grew up or even 10, 15 years ago. And that represents progress, my friends. And that is a good thing. And that absolutely warms the cockles of my redheaded American heart. Mossy, anything before we go, my friend? I know you're off to uh, explore the city of Seattle. We got any, uh, any plans specifically that you want to do? Well, first off, we can table this for another day. But the argument you would get on the jobs is what about all the jobs lost when lower division teams go bankrupt because of MLS's closed system. So you better think of an answer to that when people bring that up on Twitter. Oh, I got, I got plenty of answers. <laughs> for, for, I'll just tell people, go look up the number of front office jobs that a USL team has, for example, San Diego or something like that. Then go look at the number of front office jobs that someone like, I don't know, the uh, Minnesota loons up there have. And get back to me. All right, go ahead. Uh, okay, no, but yeah, looking forward to Seattle. Uh, I think we're going to do Space Needle for sure, Pike's Market. I mentioned the Pop Culture Museum. Um, so yeah, it should be a fun Ooh. few days, and I'll have plenty to report back on our next pod on Monday. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, like I said, we went a little bit long, but we give you a little uh, little bonus of uh, State of the Union. And we got a big weekend of soccer that I think everybody's excited to, uh, to check out. Mossy, have a wonderful time in Seattle. I'll talk to you again uh, next week. We will talk and see you uh, again next week. Until then, keep downloading and rating and subscribing and doing all the different things that you do out there on all the different platforms that we have. We are so thankful that you do it each and every week, multiple times each and every week. And by the way, I don't know if for those of you that do listen and or uh, watch now over there on Spotify. Yep, we do have video and it's pretty cool. I was uh, bringing it up there. So the Spotify folks are doing some good things when it comes to the, uh, the content platform out there. So check that out. We will see you again and uh, talk to you again next week. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.